Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. This is your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. The Unfinished History of the Iran-Iraq War, Faith, Firepower and Iran's Revolutionary Guards represents a fascinating and carefully documented intellectual history of how Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps document, remember, and contest the Iran-Iraq war and of its ramifications for the religious, cultural, and political history of the country. Utilizing a large corpus of a range of previously unexplored sources, Annie Tracy Samuel, explains in meticulous detail and with aesthetic verve the interconnections between the Iranian revolution and the Iran-Iraq war and the legacy of these two critical moments in relation to the Iranian state's self-imagination today. This lucidly written book should interest interest scholars from a range of disciplines and non-academics as well. Here now is my conversation with Professor Annie Tracy Samuel. Hello, Annie. Welcome to the New Books Network. It's a real pleasure to have you on our podcast show and a real treat to have read your book, as I was just mentioning before we began, uh, formally began this um, conversation. It really is a a tremendous intellectual history uh, and institutional history uh, that draws on a really exciting uh, archive. And I'm very excited to talk to you about uh, many aspects of your book. But before we get into the book, as you might uh, know, Annie, that we have a tradition in the New Books Network that our first question is always biographical. So I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners about how uh, you became a scholar. Yes. Well, thank you so much to you for hosting this and for having me and and taking time to read the book and conduct the interview. I, I very much appreciate it. So how I became a scholar is that I always loved learning. I loved school. I was a curious child. And I loved history in particular and understanding the connections between past and present that seemed to be surrounding me. And I was encouraged in those interests uh, first by my parents and then by wonderful teachers who I had in high school 
And when I got to college, I knew I wanted to major in history, uh, which I added a minor in political science to. But my interest in becoming a scholar really began during the process of writing my senior history thesis, which was an undertaking that was very challenging, but was also one that I found really rewarding and that I found I enjoyed so much that I wanted to continue doing it. I wanted to continue projects like the one I had begun for the thesis. So I made a somewhat last minute decision to apply to graduate school and to focus on Middle East history, which I had become interested in after taking a class on the Middle East in college. And so I decided to focus on the Middle East, on on the history of that region, uh, being intrigued particularly by its, its complexity, by how confounding it is. Uh, and in grad school, I, I focused on the Middle East. And then especially under the supervision of some great mentors, I decided to focus especially on Iran. And that has been the main focus of my scholarship since then, although I have coupled that with additional interests in international relations and U.S. involvement in the Middle East. Terrific. Uh, so I thought as a, as a first question to begin our, uh, our conversation, uh, it might be helpful for the listeners to find out a bit about the broad context um, and theme of the book. And uh, perhaps I think the best way to do that would be for you to perhaps uh, speak a bit about two of the key categories in the book. One, of course, is the organization IRGC, which on which the book focuses. What is that? Uh, and why is that, uh, you know, a center uh, central to your to your book? And secondly, perhaps I could have you talk a bit about uh, the the title of the book, and especially the two key terms of faith and firepower, uh, how they figure into the larger theme and the argument of the book. Maybe that might be a good way for us to make an entryway into what this book is about. Certainly. Well, the I'll, I'll start by sort of setting out the main subjects of the book, uh, one of, of which you mentioned, which is the IRGC. And the IRGC is the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and it is one of the two militaries in Iran uh, and has existed since the 1979 revolution in that country. And it's an incredibly powerful organization that is not only a military, but that really consists of an agglomeration of military, political, economic, social, cultural, and other endeavors. And it has expanded dramatically from its initial post-revolutionary beginnings, and particularly through its involvement in the Iran-Iraq War, has become one of the most powerful institutions in Iran today. And and that, of course, is the other main subject of the book, which is the Iran-Iraq War, which was a brutal war fought between the states of Iran and Iraq from 1980 to 1988. So I examine both the IRGC and the Iran-Iraq War in terms of of two main themes. One is the idea of unfinished history, 
that the history of the war remains unsettled and incomplete and unfinished. And the second, as you mentioned, of faith and firepower. And the second of those themes, the one of faith and firepower, uh, comes from a slogan that was used during the war uh, on the Iranian side, uh, which held that the, the faith of Iran's troops is stronger than the superior firepower of Iraq's troops. And that has come to symbolize, that sentiment has come to symbolize uh, some important truisms, what have become truisms, I think mistakenly, about how we should understand Iran today. And it has come to mean that faith was the only thing that was important for Iran, that religion and revolution are are what drive Iran in everything that it does, including it in how it prosecuted the war. And so what I try to do in the book is to say that, yes, the role of of faith broadly construed is certainly important in understanding Iran and how it prosecuted the war. Uh, Firepower, meaning military professionalism, strategy, weapons, Firepower is is just as important for understanding how Iran prosecuted the war and understanding what the IRGC is and understanding the Islamic Republic of Iran more broadly. Wonderful. Uh, Before we get into the uh, ways in which um, the IRGC has... uh, remembered and narrated and uh, documented uh, the Iran-Iraq war and some of its implications, which is the bulk of the book. I thought before we get into that, it might be useful uh, for us to discuss what comes in the earlier part of the book, which is basically the the documentation of the war and the kind of infrastructure, uh, I guess the institutional and discursive infrastructure that went into uh, making this archive possible. So I was wondering if you could actually speak a bit about your archive first. You know, what kinds of sources uh, 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 have uh, did you consider and, and, and examine? And uh, uh, maybe connect that to the larger sort of documentational infrastructure, so to say, uh, that the IRGC amassed and depended on in, in, um, uh, in assembling the kind of archive that you then examined. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. absolutely. Uh, so this is a question that relates, I think, to how this book really came about. And it, it came about because of, of the sources that, that form the basis of the book and, and the arguments I make in the book. And the project began as a PhD dissertation, as many first books do. And the dissertation was initially looking at the rather broad subject of Iranian foreign policy in the 1980s. And I was on a trip to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. to look for various sources on that subject. And in the course of that research, I found a very large collection of sources produced by the IRGC. Uh, which I hadn't heard anything about and which I found very surprising. 
Everything that I had known about the IRGC suggested that it was uh, a powerful and ideological military and that it wasn't in the business of producing the sorts of sources that I had found. And these sources were, were large. They were quite scholarly and academic uh, and well-referenced, and and they were extensive. And they all focused on this issue of the Iran-Iraq war. And so when I came across these sources, I, I knew as a historian that I was really on to something. And so I made those sources the focus first of the dissertation and then of the book. So what these sources are is most broadly, they are a history of the Iran-Iraq war that has been written by the IRGC. And they consist of a, a range of, of historical publications uh, produced primarily by what is now known as the Holy Defense Research and Documentation Center. Uh, Holy Defense or Sacred Defense uh, is how the Iran-Iraq War is often referred to in Iran. So the Holy Defense Research and Documentation Center is a branch within the IRGC that is solely devoted to documenting and writing the history of the Iran-Iraq War. Uh, it used to be called the Center for War Studies and Research, uh, but now it's called this Holy Defense Research and Documentation Center. Uh, and that project, uh, this, this center and the publications it has produced, uh, began very early in the IRGC's history, which is extends beyond the war by, by only a period of about a year and a half. Uh, but this project began uh, just about six months into the war uh, in the spring of 1981. Uh, and it began when the IRGC established what they called a war history division uh, within what was then called their political bureau. Uh, and then what became the center was established in 1985. Uh, but what this war history division of the IRGC political bureau did is that it began training uh, what were called war narrators, to essentially observe what was happening in the course of the war, uh, to, to observe what was going on, to interview key, key actors prosecuting the war, to collect documents, to make recordings, uh, and to assemble all of that information as the war progressed. Uh, and that's, that's indeed what happened. And so we have a, a really unique project of a revolutionary organization that is very new itself, finding itself fighting an interstate war that it was not designed to fight uh, and understanding right away that this was an experience that needed to be documented. And so that's what they, they set about doing. So over the course of the war, the IRGC collected 
thousands and thousands more than than I know uh, uh, pages uh, and and other kinds of records of documents uh, over the course of, of the war. Uh, so they they focused on documenting the war for the entire eight years that it was ongoing. And then when the war ended, uh, this uh, Holy Defense Research and Documentation Center shifted to organizing and cataloging all of these records and then producing historical publications uh, based on those records. And so those publications consist of several different things. Uh, The most important is a series called Chronology of the Iran-Iraq War, uh, which will be, uh, when it's complete, uh, 57 volumes, uh, each of which focuses on a particular period of the war, usually of about uh, uh, several months. Uh, Not all 57 have been published, but there are 57 that that are planned, and the war has been uh, divided up into these what will be these 57 volumes. Uh, And each chapter in the volume is is a day of the war. Uh, And there's analysis of the major military and political events on that day, excerpts from news sources, uh, 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 examples of sources, primary sources, that the IRGC collected. Uh, And so that's a a massive and really valuable series uh, that I draw on a lot uh, in the book and that is really the most important of these IRGC sources. Uh, But then there are several other series that address the history of the war in a number of ways. Uh, So there's two series that that trace the war's evolution uh, chronologically. Uh, There's one series called Critique and Review of the Iran-Iraq War that looks at difficult questions like why the war began, uh, why it continued for as long as it did. Uh, There are several series of atlases that look at how the war played out in in different Iranian cities and provinces, Uh, atlases that focus on specific battles and some that focus on specific military units. Uh, And there's a series on uh, the oral history of the war, uh, where the IRGC historians uh, work with commanders to document their history. Uh, so that's that's the trove of, of sources, the the sort of uh, institutional uh, archive uh, that I use to to build the arguments and, and construct the history that I present in the book. Terrific. Um, now, now turning to a major theme of the book, which is how is the Iran-Iraq war narrated by the IRCG? Um then we'll come to some of its implications and consequences. But one of the things that I found really fascinating, and it's something that you very convincingly show in the middle part of the book, is that the relationship between the Iran-Iraq war and the moment of the Iranian revolution. And what you show in the book is that this relationship actually is one of uh, considerable ambiguity in that at times the, the Iranian revolution is seen as a hindrance uh, to the participation or successful execution 
um, during the Iran-Iraq war by by the IRCG or how it remembers this moment. And at other times, uh, the revolution is seen as uh, a, a positive force or helping uh, sort of uh, uh, force uh, in terms of in terms of uh, this war. So I was wondering if you could speak about that dynamic of how it was seen as a hindrance or a facilitator um, of um, the successful execution of this war, and it's and and maybe in terms of how it was a helping force. If you could also speak a bit about the significance of the uh, epic of Khoram Shahar um, and how that was seen as a turning point in how this war was remembered. Certainly. Uh, and this this question of the relationship between the war and the revolution that preceded it by about 18 months, uh, I think is, is incredibly complex uh, and ambiguous, as you said, and, and quite interesting, uh, both from a historical perspective in terms of how we understand uh, Iran and, and this Iran-Iraq war, uh, and also from a theoretical perspective because it helps us understand what the relationship between revolution and war are. Uh, And this is a subject that the IRGC historians, uh, as you said, approach with a view that prizes uh, complexity and and to a certain extent uh, evinces some ambiguity. So the argument that the IRGC historians make is that the war was very much connected to the revolution, but they describe the connection in a way that is a bit different uh, than the manner it's usually been discussed in in the secondary literature that's been written in English, uh, and in much of that literature, the the common contention is that the war began because Iraq felt threatened by Iran's revolution and particularly by the threat to forcefully export this revolution abroad, uh, specifically to Iraq. And what the IRGC historians argue is that the connection between the war and, and the revolution stems most fundamentally and most simply from from the timing, uh, from the fact that the war began so soon after the revolution occurred. And while the the revolutionary transition uh, was still underway. Uh, so they acknowledged that the revolution was was seen as a threat, was perceived as a threat by Iraq and others, uh, but they characterized that threat as as sort of fear of what the revolution might do or or become, uh, sort of a confrontation that was was intrinsic to the revolution itself, uh, rather than than policies to actively export it. Uh, and for the IRGC, what's so important is to to understand again the timing uh, that this war began in the midst of a transition that had started but not yet ended, uh, and that was an intentional in their estimation because Iraq made the calculation uh, that this was the time to attack. Iran, uh, when the threat of the revolution was such that it could 
be effectively countered, uh, that the revolution was not yet institutionalized. Uh, and so it it could be effectively uh, dealt with at that point. Uh, so the idea was to attack Iran at a time when its armed forces in particular uh, were in a very weak and transitory state. Uh, when the, the regular military that had been held over from the previous regime uh, had been severely uh, weakened and demoralized, uh, when the IRGC was uh, barely getting itself off the ground and was in, in no way prepared for a, a conventional war like the one it was about to face. Uh, and so conditions like that provided the opportunity for Iraq to invade and also made it incredibly difficult for Iran to prosecute the war, especially in its initial, uh, certainly its initial couple of months and then in its first sort of two years. Uh, and so during that period, the, the revolutionary transition was ongoing in a manner that, that hindered Iran's war effort. But at the same time, the IRGC historians also assert that in some respects, the revolution helped the war effort uh, because it helped to mobilize the population uh, to fight the war. Uh, people in Iran were sort of already mobilized uh, because of, of the revolution. Uh, so in sort of instead of settling down into sort of more normal non-revolutionary times, people were still active uh, and were prepared to, to engage. Uh, in confronting uh, the Iraqi invasion. Uh, and people also viewed the invasion, uh, the IRG historians assert rightfully so, uh, as an attack not just on the country or the nation or on the territory, but on, on the revolution. And so this view that the there was so much at stake at the war, that they were fighting to protect their country and their revolution, uh, helped people uh, contribute to the defense and helped them prosecute the war. Uh, and I think we can see that especially uh, in this epic of Horamshar, which you mentioned. Uh, and that Horamshar is a, is a city uh, in southwestern Iran, uh, in, in the province that's known as Khuzestan, uh, which, which borders Iraq. And Khuzestan province is, is where much of the, the fighting actually took place. And Horamshar was the site of, of two of the, the most uh, consequential battles and, and some of the bloodiest uh, battles of the war. Uh, first in Iraq's efforts to occupy the city in the first months of the war, uh, which it did successfully only after uh, its second attempt to do so at the end uh, of October uh, 1980. And then the city remained under occupation uh, until Iranian forces were able to retake it, which was in the spring of 1982. Uh, so for a year and a half, uh, the city was occupied. And, and the retaking of Horamshar for the Iranian forces was sort of the culmination of this overall reversal in the war uh, that allowed them to, to finally liberate the territories that Iraqi forces 
forces had occupied. Uh, and the, the successful campaign to retake the city uh, represented a case where, where faith, where the revolution could be used effectively in battle. Uh, and that's because of, of the particular uh, way that this, this battle was, was fought, uh, the way that the IRGC helped organize the campaign, uh, how they relied on, on sort of less traditional uh, military uh, tactics to overcome uh, what was still Iraq's superiority in firepower. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off wonderful now turning to another key theme of the book which is also uh, mentioned in uh, in the title uh, as well um, which is this idea of the war as something unfinished uh, as something that you know may may have ended in terms of how we uh, in terms of a historical event but it continues uh, as an important uh, normative force in the imaginaries of uh, uh, the members of the Revolutionary Guard until today. Uh, could you speak a bit about that theme and what it means to your actors, this idea of the war as unfinished, and why is that such an important idea, both to these actors and to the argument of your book? Great. Uh, so the, the war remains unfinished, I think, in, in several respects. Uh, first is that it ended inconclusively. So even though it formally did come to an end, uh, it did so in a really inconclusive manner for both sides. Uh, and I think especially for Iran, uh, as it had attempted to uh, go on on the offensive uh, in the summer of 1982, uh, in an attempt to force recognition of its ceasefire terms. Uh, and it was only partially successful in that. And in the process, uh, that invasion of Iraq uh, led to six years of, of really brutal stalemate uh, and to a lot of, of wasted uh, blood and treasure. Uh, and so looking back on that, looking back on the, the inconclusive way that the war ended, 
uh, has meant for the IRGC that that the war remains unfinished. It really never came to a satisfactory uh, conclusion. Uh, so that's that's one way the war remains unfinished. Uh, another way is the fact that the IRGC and Iranian leaders uh, more broadly uh, have used the Iran-Iraq war as as a learning experience. Uh, They understand how important this this war uh, was and is, and they have accordingly made efforts to derive political and strategic lessons from the war, uh, particularly lessons relating to how Iran uh, can better protect its national security uh, and how it can prevent, in particular, uh, another war of the kind that began in 1980 from breaking out. Uh, Deterrence is a a principle of of national security that that many countries prioritize, uh, but it's particularly important for Iran, given that it was invaded and it was thrown into uh, this eight-year-long war. And so Iranian leaders and and military leaders like the IRGC specifically uh, are very much concerned with establishing deterrence, uh, of correcting the the failures that led to the outbreak of the war uh, in the first place, uh, and to learning from the overall experience uh, of the war in terms of how to better uh, defend the country. Uh, And that has led to efforts, uh, for example, to ensure that Iran uh, is is self-sufficient when it comes to defensive technologies, uh, that it is not as isolated as it was during the war. Uh, that it can uh, maintain its its independence and its national sovereignty, uh, and and so overall, what it can learn from from the war. Uh, Iranian leaders also see the war as continuing in terms of the fact that they they view the sort of enmity uh, against the Islamic Republic that the war embodied uh, as having continued after the war. Uh, one example of this uh, is is the, the sanctions uh, that have been imposed on Iran, uh, especially as a result of its nuclear program. Uh, and Iranian leaders often tie this, the issue of the, the nuclear program uh, and how uh, it's been been a, a focus of international concern for, for so long, uh, as sort of the continuation of the kind of opposition to the Islamic Republic uh, that has existed uh, since the revolution uh, and that took shape most violently in the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, so there are efforts to uh, continue to defend the country like they did in the war, uh, continue and remain unfinished uh, because efforts to uh, confront Iran uh, to limit its independence and power uh, also continue. Uh, and then last, I think the, the war is unfinished uh, because its its legacy uh, remains uh, potent and, and and remains uh, in transition, uh, especially as it recedes further and further into the past. 
Uh, and as new generations come to be born uh, in Iran uh, who didn't experience the revolution and who weren't alive during the war. Uh, and the IRGC historians are very concerned with ensuring that the war's legacies uh, live on, uh, that people who were born after the war uh, and even those who experienced it uh, realize how impactful it was and understand uh, how essential sort of keeping the history alive is. Uh, and so they've, they've devoted themselves uh, to that endeavor uh, in a way that, that is ongoing. And so their, their contributions to the history of the war also remain unfinished. I want to return to another major theme of the book that you uh, spoke about earlier, but that you return to uh, in the book as well uh, later, uh, or in the later part of the book, uh, which of course is this uh, relationship between faith and firepower. And uh, one of the key points that you make in the book, and you make it really convincingly, is that the common perception of the Iran-Iraq war as just having been, having been animated by considerations of religious fervor, etc., are a bit misplaced. And you nuance that idea to show how uh, faith and military prowess were in fact negotiated uh, in some very interesting ways uh, during the war and also how they're negotiated in terms of the afterlife of the war, uh, so to say, or the continuing life, I should say, of the war, uh, so to say. So could you speak a bit again about that key theme uh, and, 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 and that argument of your book of not just reducing uh, the memory of this war just to religious motivations? Yes. Uh, and I, I really like how you put it there, right? It's about not reducing the war to purely religious motivations. Uh, and so what I wanted to do was to not to argue that that faith, that religion uh, weren't important. Uh, quite the contrary, they were immensely important. But what I wanted to do was to complicate uh, this notion that that it was all about faith, that, that Iranians uh, were completely animated by, by religious fervor, uh, were sort of irrationally obsessed with, with martyrdom, uh, with with sort of religious uh, principles and religious callings, uh, that this war was was completely subsumed within a a larger uh, crusade to liberate Karbala from uh, from the Iraqi regime and then to to march onward to liberate Jerusalem, uh, w- which I think uh, is is characteristic, unfortunately, of of the way that Iran has been portrayed uh, for too long. Uh, So as I said, faith, religion certainly are important, uh, but it doesn't mean that that they were everything. Uh, And so we should understand the war for what it was, that it for Iran, it was a, a war that was fought, uh, especially in the first two years, in, in defense, in, in response to a foreign invasion. Uh, and faced with this foreign invasion that it was in no way prepared to confront, uh, Iran had to rely on all of the tools at its disposal, uh, which included both faith 
and firepower. Uh, and one of the reasons why faith was so important to Iran was that it was one of the very few areas that it had the advantage over Iraq. Uh, Iraq had superior weaponry, superior support, uh, superior firepower, and sort of all the senses I use it in the book uh, in all respects throughout the war. Uh, Iran had immense difficulty uh, securing weapons and spare parts uh, and and any of the kinds of uh, sort of military material it needed to fight this war. Uh, but what it did have uh, was a, a relatively committed population uh, and a relatively more committed uh, soldiery. Uh, Iraq, Iraqi soldiers uh, had quite poor morale. Uh, during the conflict, uh, whereas Iranian soldiers, for most of it at least, uh, had had much greater commitment uh, to the war effort. And so what the IRGC sources argue is that that was a real benefit to Iran, having uh, a larger population and a more committed population uh, was was a real benefit to Iran, was one of the few areas that, that it could uh, be stronger and it could use effectively against Iran. Uh, Iraq's superior firepower. Uh, but at the same time, they they don't disregard the, the importance of, of weapons and strategy and, and military professionalism. Uh, and we can see that in, in sort of a number of ways uh, in how the IRGC professionalized uh, quite quickly uh, and quite fundamentally over the course of the war uh, as a result of its understanding of, of how important that was uh, to its ability to prosecute the war uh, anything nearly uh, successfully. Uh, and also in terms of, of the efforts to, uh, to secure weapons uh, in whatever way that, that it could. Uh, one example of that is, is the Iran-Contra affair. Uh, where Iran uh, made the decision that uh, interests had to take precedence over ideology, that its interest in uh, attaining weapons that it needed for the war had to take precedence over an ideology uh, holding that the United States was was an enemy of Iran that should not be be dealt with, uh, and that is in fact what happened uh, in in the Iran Contra affair. Uh, so the idea is to is to again complicate this this picture uh, and to understand how both faith and firepower uh, were important to the prosecution of the war and to understanding the IRGC as an institution today. There's a final substantive question I wanted to ask you about the significance of uh, the war today uh, or the significance of the history that you tell about the war today. Um, and you begin the book with this narrative about three very different ideologically positioned actors on the Iranian scene in the contemporary moment being on agreement with the one thing that that this is a war and especially the treatment of the U.S. during this war that Iranian society will never forget. Uh, but I was wondering if you could speak a bit about the, 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 the significance, the importance of this story, this history that you tell in this book, 
um, for uh, these actors, uh, the IRGC, but more broadly in terms of uh, uh, the contours of Iranian uh, politics and uh, society uh, today. Yes, certainly. Uh, well, I think the the significance of the war today uh, is is quite difficult to to overstate. Uh, for the the Iranian public, uh, people are still very much living with the legacies of the war, uh, even as as new post war generations are being born. There are still uh, many many people who who continue to live with the scars of this war. Uh, And in terms of of politics, uh, it also continues to have a really fundamental uh, impact. Uh, One of the the issues where we can see this is uh, is the nuclear issue, Uh, that Iranian leaders understand the confrontation over its nuclear program uh, in terms that have been very much informed by the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, That, for example, Iran's distrust of the international community uh, to abide by its own uh, laws and norms uh, is something that is intimately connected to the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, That Iran's distrust of the United Nations uh, in particular uh, comes from the war, from the, the UN's failure to condemn Iraq as the aggressor in the war uh, for many years, uh, for uh, its failure to condemn Iraq's use of chemical weapons. Uh, Iran sees things like that as, as having important lessons for how it should engage with other countries uh, today, uh, that it views international engagement as something that should be done with with the utmost caution and that it should be very wary of trusting other countries especially with Iran's own security that that any interactions or any compromises that have the potential to make Iran less independently secure should be viewed with with great skepticism and in that light, I think we can understand the, the difficulty of, of concluding the 2015 nuclear deal, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, in a new light and understand why it was so uh, difficult for Iran to, to trust the UN, uh, to trust uh, the United States. Uh, of course, there, there were difficulties on, on both sides. Of, of the sides trusting Iran, um, but of course I'm speaking uh, of, of the Iranian side now. Um, so, so how how challenging it was for for Iran to undertake that kind of engagement, uh, and then what it meant when the uh, when the United States withdrew from the nuclear deal. Uh, that for Iran, that seemed to justify the the sort of warnings. Uh, that I describe in the beginning of the book uh, from very different leaders, including Supreme Leader Khamenei, uh, the former uh, foreign minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif, uh, an IRGC commander, who who all connect uh, Iran's 
ongoing distrust of the United States, specifically to the Iran-Iraq war, uh, and make the case that, that if relations between Iran and the United States are going to improve, uh, this distrust stemming from the war uh, is going to, to have to be addressed. Uh, so that's that's sort of about the political influence uh, of the war. But I'll also say, uh, just to conclude and, and briefly, uh, that I think the importance of the war comes to from how history is viewed and how the IRGC views history, uh, that they view history uh, somewhat surprisingly, uh, as as absolutely critical, uh, really as as an imperative that they understand that the role that history has in in shaping national identity, uh, in shaping political culture, and shaping the sort of common imaginary, and they want to to work based on that understanding and to realize the need to to ensure that history isn't lost and that the history of the war is is kept alive the unfinished history of the iran iraq war faith firepower and iran's revolutionary gods by professor annie tracy samuel published by cambridge university press in 2022 uh, thank you uh, so much annie for your uh, time for the generosity of your time and for this really um, uh, exciting and uh, fascinating book and for your very lucid and uh, uh, analytically profitable um, answers uh, to uh, my questions today. Uh, I'm sure our listeners really enjoyed the conversation and will learn a lot from it and as well as they will uh, from the book uh, uh, too. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So this was my conversation with uh, Professor Annie Tracy Samuel about her wonderful new book, The Unfinished History of the Iran-Iraq War. I hope you enjoyed this episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which, remember, operates online through the New Books Network. I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of your favorite podcast. Note it, name it, NBIS. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to new books in Islamic studies. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.